Okay, um, so let's get started with the session. So I'd first like to thank everyone for dialing in to this SMA space panel discussion, and especially thank our speakers dialing in from the UK. We have Dr. Blood and Bowen and Dr. Mark Hilborn, as well as our moderator, Dr. Nick Wright. And uh, hopefully everyone that dialed in received the event booklet, which contains the topics of today's discussion and the speakers' biographies. And I also sent out a one-page summary of Dr. Bowen's recent work. And if you haven't received these materials, you can feel free to email me, and I'll send those over to you. So now I'm going to briefly introduce today's moderator, Dr. Nick Wright, before turning the floor over to him before, for the speaker introductions. Dr. Nicholas Wright is a senior researcher at Intelligent Biology in the UK. There he applies insights from neuroscience and psychology to decision-making in international confrontations in ways practically applicable to policy. He's also conducted plenty of work for the UK government and the Pentagon Joint Staff throughout the years. So Nick, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, and I'm also at Georgetown uh, University, uh, which I should have also added in. Um, so I think the, I mean, the reason why um, we ha we're going to have this panel today is because for the US uh, to succeed in a variety of key escalation scenarios, uh, for example, uh, that will involve space, for example, in the Baltics, or in East Ukraine, uh, understanding allied perceptions will be critical. Um, and space is a very difficult area. Uh, this has been illustrated with our recent simulation, um, where there were problems even getting German, French, and British participation in an unclassified simulation uh, related to US space operations in, um, uh, in a Baltic scenario. Um, so, it's in a very important area, and it's an area that people don't typically understand. So what we're going to look at today is what uh, does the UK do in space? What are the UK space capabilities? What does the UK think about space? Think about space that might be uh, similar to the way the US thinks about space operations and might differ to the way the US thinks about space operations. And uh, I'm really pleased that the the two speakers we have today are the two leading UK academics uh, who work on space. I, I'm, I'm not puffing them up by saying that. Um, so we have uh, Dr. Mark Hilborn from King's College London, who leads the space group there, uh, and Bevan Bowen, who's now at the University of Leicester, who, who was formerly at King's College London. And um, uh, they've both published extensively on space, and in addition to that, have both published specifically on Britain uh, and space. Uh, and I'm very excited to, to hear what they have to say today. And so Blevin is going to start off, and before going on to some of his sort of, to try and answer some of the questions that, that are involved in the booklet, he, he's also going to give a, uh, an overview of Britain and space. So what do we do? What's the commercial sector uh, like in the UK? Uh, what do we think about in terms of doctrine and so on? And then he's going to go on to give his remarks. Then it will be Dr. Mark Hilborn, uh, and then we should have a good amount of time, at least 25 minutes, half an hour, for questions at the end. So, Blevin, uh, over to you. Hey, yeah, thanks very much, Nick, uh, and uh, thank you all for um, having me here uh, today. So, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll start off with just a uh, very uh, brief um, overview of um, UK space. Uh, so, the, um, in my recent research, I've categorised the United uh, the United Kingdom as a secondary space power. So um, it uh, is not comparable to uh, China, Russia, or the United States. In 
space, uh, but it has particular niches and strengths that I have fostered uh, over the last uh, few decades and is getting into uh, increasingly interesting areas uh, with um, new satellite applications and small satellites. Uh, so um, the primary um, sovereign space capability for the British uh, in space it itself would be the uh, Skynet communication satellite. So there are seven of those in geosynchronous orbit at, at the moment, uh, which provide um, essential um, uh, bands of communication for deployed military forces. Um, and uh, the MOD has already decided that the uh, next generation of Skynet satellites will be brought in-house into the Ministry of Defence um, and not be operated by private contractors. Uh, so that is some indication of um, increasing interest and uh, seriousness that the MOD is, uh, is giving uh, or is taking the space. Um, so as well as that key capability, um, as many of you know, uh, the United Kingdom operates RAF Filingdales up in the North Yorkshire Moors and that contributes to the US um, Space Surveillance Network. I mean, it's ostensibly a um, early, uh, early missile, uh, early warning system for detecting uh, ballistic missile launches, but it can double up as a um, space tracking station. But I believe it is underutilized um, as a space tracking station. Um, but, uh, that piece of information might be a bit out of date by now. It's been a few years since I have chatted with people from there. Um, the other element of British space capability is the Space Operations Centre at RAF High Wycombe where uh, British and American data is brought back into the UK um, and then is processed uh, for the RAF and the Ministry of Defence um, and uh, I believe um, Joint Forces Command JFC um, is, is the primary point of contact for um, US and the UK in military space um, and I believe the JFC liaises quite consistently and thoroughly with um, the United States on uh, position navigation timing issues um, and their various uh, other space information systems. Um, so that is, in effect, um, all the MOD does uh, in space uh, in, in any sovereign matter. So focusing on communication satellites and then um, offering some space surveillance systems and some space um, uh, processing centre or space situational awareness centre uh, for um, UK uh, crisis management in space and requesting uh, space assets for deployed military forces from allies and not just the United States. Um, so another area of strength then for the British uh, uh, in space is in the commercial sector. So um, uh, commercial uh, communications uh, companies are registered in the UK, a big one being in Marsat. So the UK can be quite influential uh, in industrial um, activities and commercial activities um, in space communications, especially maritime communications. Um, and in terms of registered satellites within the UK, the bulk of them are commercial um, and there's increasing capability for commercial companies in the UK for Earth observation uh, and other kinds of reconnaissance and surveillance satellites from space, uh, especially riding on the back of British successes in developing small satellites. Um, so, and, and recently as well, the Ministry of Defence invested in a live uh, video um, capture satellite um, from a lower orbit uh, called Carbonite 2. So it's owned and operated by a um, small uh, business that was invested in by the Ministry of Defence. So um, increasingly it seems the Ministry of Defence may be looking into new kinds of surveillance from space, um, especially with a small satellite application which may be able to support British space industry. Um, so the, the, 
the military side for the British and States has been dominated by its partnership with the United States or the so-called special relationship and the Five Eyes um, infrastructure. Um, and commercially, Britain is very much embedded and tied in with the European scientific, commercial and industrial ventures. Of course, uh, some questions are being raised now uh, because of Brexit, which I'm happy to go into detail. Um, but British space is very much a history of minimal public investment um, maximising the gains from um, allied capabilities from both sides of the Atlantic. So I hope that's a good enough brief overview to get us started and I can go into more details as the conversation progresses. Thanks, President. Thanks very much, Evan. And would, would you like to perhaps offer a few thoughts on some of the questions about British thinking on operations and so on? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I can get into the doctrine. Um, so, I mean, the, the broad stroke essentially is that, um, and, and as I wrote in the forthcoming uh, article for the Rusi Journal, um, is that UK doctrine on the whole is very similar to um, uh, to American doctrine where it is now. Um, so uh, the the MOD just uh, reviewed um, air and space doctrine in December 2017. So it's mostly just a, a, a cosmetic uh, upgrade, um, but it outlines um, four roles uh, for uh, space power. Um, so that would be space control, space situational awareness, space support to terrestrial operations, and space service report. So the only role difference with the Americans would be force application in from and through space. Um, so in, in, in the biggest elements of um, exploiting and controlling space during a crisis or war, uh, conceptually uh, the British are on the same page as the Americans in terms of military space doctrine. Um, and this um, review of doctrine uh, is very much on the back of increasing interest across Whitehall um, and across the British states uh, in space as well. So uh, in the last few years, we've had the first US national space security policy, sorry, the first UK national space security policy, mm. and the first national space policy as well, which echoes a lot of conventional thinking, at least as I'm familiar with, from US um, space policy and space security policy, so that space is congested, competitive, um, and contested, uh, if I remember the three C's correctly. Um, so it, it's very much uh, bringing uh, Britain and official British thinking into line uh, with what American official documents have been saying for quite a long time. Um, but it, it, this is noteworthy in that Britain is actually saying this out in the open now, rather than keeping it locked in uh, within specialist communities, uh, within, within Whitehall and within the Ministry of uh, Defence. Um, however, there is an area where um, doctrine might be branching off uh, somewhere else from uh, America, and that would be in um, the development of small satellites. So that gets some prominent mention in the doctrine, um, and that ties into the wider industrial and commercial interests of, of British space sector as well. So that might be one way of trying to play to British strength and trying to build some um, some uh, focus for developing more sovereign British space capabilities in small satellite uh, Earth observation. Um, but other than that, I mean, there isn't that much difference from 
British doctrine as it is now from conventional thinking in uh, American uh, space doctrine. Um, maybe, so maybe I could. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, carry on. No, 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 no. You carry on. Well, I'm just going to say to to support that. I think one of the the aspects is the UK has somewhat limited uh, capability, and it, it in some respects its contribution is largely passive. So. UK space capability relies much more on um, access to US capability, and therefore it has to acquiesce on things like US doctrine to a certain extent and, and align with US thinking. So it's kind of a, a natural alignment in many respects. Uh, yes, it is a natural alignment, partly because um, the you know, UK personnel have to be able to understand um, American space operations and space yeah. uh, but also because um, American doctrine largely has the big ideas right anyway. Uh, in terms of you know the essential of strategic truth that space is just another environment in the time of war that has to be controlled, uh, defended, and exploited, and then denied to adversaries um, as well because it is so useful in war. And British space security policy is quite explicit that uh, threats to um, UK space infrastructure and satellites will be treated as seriously and will be responded to in in the same way as threats to similar levels of interest in other environments, so there's nothing that special about space, so the UK will still rely on laws of armed, uh, law of armed conflict and general rules of uh, proportionality, necessity and discrimination in assessing its own actions and responses in space. So in many ways, I found it just normalising British understanding uh, in space. Thank you very much. And uh, if I may just ask, just to clarify, so do you think that there has been, if you were to look over the last 15 years or so, so since the turn of the millennium, do you think that there's been a, a real change in uh, sort of, well, in, in two ways, one in declaratory British doctrine and thinking, and the other in sort of actual behind-the-scenes British doctrine and thinking? Hmm. Okay. Um, on, on the first one, um, declaratory, yes. Uh, there's been a big change because these documents exist now. Uh, so in the last 15 years, uh, we've had the NSP and the NSSP. Uh, we've had um, the RAF and then MOD split off um, space from air in its doctrine. So it used to be air and space. Oh, sorry, air, air and space doctrine, and it was um, space was interlinked and intermeshed with air power roles and doctrines in the document. But now it's very much an air and space. So space is um, sort of a separate half within the same doctrine document now. So I've, that shows some intellectual shift as well, and it's being space as separate uh, to the air. Um, of course, in 2010, we had the foundation of the UK Space Agency, which showed increasing centralised tendencies and more prominence given to the space sector as a whole. Uh, 2010, we had the first um, British military space primer, so there's, there's more educational material for officers uh, in, in the MOD to read if they are to be given a space job. Um, in terms of practice or the practical changes within uh, the MOD, I don't know because I, I was far too young to notice these things 15 years ago, so I don't know um, internally whether things are really changing on the inside from 15 years ago. But looking from the outside and what's being written and what's being released and what's being said, um, I, I think 
I would expect to see some change, at least in practice, as well, following from how much has been happening in declared policy and statements of intent. But one, one gauge might be the level of personnel in the RF, for instance, in MOD, so devoted to space, and that still remains um, very small if you were to compare that with uh, doctrine, which there's a significant amount of space devoted to space. Um, but the actual cadre, the space cadre, if you like, in the UK is still still very small. So there seems to be a, a fundamental difference between what they say and, and what they do at the moment, and, and, and what's applied. Yes, yeah, so that's okay. actually one of the big challenges in the MOD is, is staffing, and that's not unique to the state. Um, no. So there's going to be always be an intellectual um, as well as a human resource problem, uh, because you're always going to struggle in getting people to do space and also to um, advance in, in space-specific careers as well because there might be added cultural elements as well, especially in the RAS, um, given various uh, cultural issues of uh, who's deserving of promotions and which tracks and how logistics people are always highlighted um, in, 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 in internal military culture. Sorry, there's not really a progression in terms of space in the RAF at the moment, a career progression for the RAF in space, so that remains a, a problem to be solved, I think. Yeah. Great, thank you very much, Bevan. So that, that, that was a fantastic overview of, of, of what Britain does and, and, and what Britain thinks. And so, Mark, um, uh, I'd, I'd be very grateful if you could give us your thoughts and perhaps try and focus a little bit on the thinking about, uh, on some of the questions um, that were in the agenda. So thinking about um, the UK in sort of escalation crisis, deterrence, etc., and how, how that links in with, 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 with US thinking and interest. Right. Well, I think that's a difficult one because there doesn't seem to be much telegraphed out of the MOD in terms of some of these points about escalation and deterrence on space. And I think the UK is rather skeptical about, say, for instance, war fighting in space, which is one of your points. Um, I think you know space is a very valuable environment, and so conducting war fighting is going to be problematic. And so, uh, you know, U.S. doctrine seems, sorry, U.K. doctrine seems to emphasize international law quite significantly in terms of preventing, you know, warfare in space, etc. So, I'd say there seems to be quite a hesitance um, to really talk about coercion or escalation uh, from the MOD. Certainly, that's something I haven't been aware of in discussing. If so, I think it's quite internal. Blevin might have had access to some of this, but I'd, I'm not really aware of them discussing el these particular elements uh, within the MOD. So that remains a, f a fundamental difference, I think, between the UK um, and the US. Blevin, would you agree with that? or? Yeah, um, I don't see anyone talking, um, especially in, in in those terms about you know what to do if there's a shooting war in space tomorrow, um, and that's one of the gaps in the um, you know in the space security policy and the military space doctrine. I mean, the focus is on you know if anything, if it comes to fighting of any kind, it's, it's about deterrence. So it's never going beyond deterrence at this point, and there's no official writing or thinking as far as I've seen in terms of how do you actually fight a, you know, a conflict with space then if the parents fails. And there's no consideration either of, um, you know, at least in written documents or from uh, in it or official conversations I have had, um, what to do if specific services are threatened from space for, um, for the military. So, 
I would imagine if these conversations are happening, they're happening at a very classified level, um, if at all. Uh, otherwise, nobody is talking about it because I have not seen any any speaking of uh, the role of space in crisis management um, from from any uh, official circles. Um, so at this point, all we have to go on officially um, and in the open is what's written in the policy documents and the doctrine, and it doesn't say anything about escalation management um, yeah. or whether they perceive an attack on a satellite as inherently more escalatory than something else. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's significant that Britain has mimicked a lot of US language um, at all in its official position, um, in that it's done it, um, and brought it into line with the same British language in you know, the air and the sea as well. So. I, I, I'm struggling to think of anything specific in terms of what's in the agenda there. There's nobody talking about it, and if they are, it's a secret. Yeah, and, and maybe that goes back to that earlier point I made about, in, in some respects, the UK's contribution is somewhat passive, and therefore it's so reliant on the US that it perhaps doesn't really enter into its decision-making process in the same way. So, I mean, it's, it's, says it's, it's interesting all that. So it's all, it's, you're right, it's probably all at a classified level that uh, we're not privy to. And it doesn't help, in terms from our perspective as academics, uh, is that one of the areas where uh, the British could do something in terms of space warfare, um, or escalation management, if you want to call it that, um, is, is in the soft kill element of counter space operation. So in the doctrine, the section on counter space is quite generic, quite sterile, and the concept is there so that British officers will understand what the Americans mean when they talk about it or, or, or do such things or practice such things. But the British could have capabilities in software, especially in electronic warfare, um, and perhaps um, offensive uh, cyber intrusion uh, mm. capabilities to hack into enemy satellite systems. So, um, so this capability, again, is one of the most classified capabilities in the entire uh, MOD. Um, and cryptography and electronic warfare is one, uh, also are two of the key areas where the British are still investing significant amounts of funds from a British, uh, proportionately British uh, amount of funds um, uh, towards these systems to keep them sovereign uh, capabilities so that the British aren't relying even on the Americans for electronic warfare or cryptography. And these are areas where you could still have some soft space warfare capabilities, but nobody is talking about you know, British soft kill options um, in, in space warfare or in space crisis management. Thank you very much. And just uh, one, one other um, issue to raise, and then we'll, we'll open it to the, to the floor. So, um, in terms of, um, so I know, Blevin, that you were involved in the recent um, uh, tabletop game that was conducted as part of this uh, part of this um, SMA project, and um, and one of the sort of all, all the main challenge there was that there was a the US uh, in this tabletop game uh, took uh, undertook an operation in space, uh, kinetic operation in space. Uh, uh, basically uh, involving the Russian satellite. So, could you articulate how do you think the, uh, and now you can be more speculative, um, 
so both Blevin and, and, and Mark, how do you think that the UK decision makers would view US-based operations and Russian-based operations? And how do you think uh, the UK would view, for example, US uh, um, uh, assurances in terms of extended deterrence and so on uh, during a crisis where a British-based asset might be threatened? Shall I go first? Or? Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, because I, I don't think I don't have a lot of information that is, as you were saying before on on, on what our thinking would specifically be. But yeah, go for it. Okay. Well, um, since I've been given creative license to be speculative, here goes. <laughs> um, um, okay. Hello. I, I okay, I'm back. Yeah, something just hung up then. Sorry, everyone, you're you're still online. Okay, good. Seven, you were saying? Are you there? You're still there? May have dropped off the line. Um, I'll tell JC to redial him in. Um, but in the meantime, we can continue. Okay. Mark, would you like to? Yeah, well, I think in terms of some of these aspects, this is it is difficult. It's funny that we don't hear um, very much at all from uh, MOD or the RAF on some of these issues, such as you know um, extended deterrence, um, Russian capabilities, etc. So it, it is kind of speculative, I think. So very difficult. Like I think um, where U.S. or sorry U.K. thinking is a lot more mature would be elements such as uh, nuclear and cyber, um, where they have much more of a history, I suppose, and you know, the space element is much more nascent in the UK. So when we're thinking about Russia and some of their interference, I think they're much much more robust and clear in those aspects, uh, say cyber and the nuclear realm. In the space capability, um, you know, we rely so much on commercial and the US that our thinking tends to be quite vague in these areas. Okay. Is, is, is Blazen with us? I think he just sent me a message saying he can connect again. Yes, I, I contacted JC and uh, he's going to dial Blood and back in. Okay. All right. So perhaps while we're waiting, I mean, in terms of thinking about extended deterrence, then I mean, how do you think that the US could buttress uh, extended deterrence, with, you know, with respect to how, how the UK perceives uh, the US extended deterrence? Uh, uh, posture in hmm. That's a very difficult one to answer. Again, um, again, there's no nothing being telegraphed out of the the MOD. So um, I suppose you know we don't really think about precisely what deterrence in space would actually mean and how we deter an attack in space. Um, it would have to be based on, I suppose, that definition of, of where we see that deterrence happening. Um, so I find that a very difficult one to to answer in terms of where the, the UK. Um, space community thinks um, how extended deterrence would actually work. Um, I, I don't actually see how that would how they how they think about it at all at the moment. This is the uh, resilience to speaking about that openly. And what, what one final area which we're waiting for Blevin to resolve that in. Um, so Blevin, is that you? Yeah, sorry for that dramatically timed uh, exit. Okay. <laughs> um, 
please, but please, uh, yes, so if you'd like to answer a question, and then, then we'll turn to the uh, 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 question. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, so um, in terms of how, how the, the British would uh, react to American hostile action, um, I mean, I guess a lot of it would depend on, you know, who's who's in charge at the time, who's the Prime Minister and uh, various elements of, of the Cabinet. Um, but I imagine, um, I mean, given this particular government, I imagine there would still be um, a, a rally around the flag uh, tendency. So I think there would be high levels of annoyance um, if such an action was done without any notification, let alone consultation, uh, with the British, uh, especially given the Five Eyes uh, relationship. Um, and that might have longer-term consequences, possibly. Um, but in the crisis, I think the United Kingdom would just try and offer whatever support they could. Um, but it would put the British government perhaps in a difficult rhetorical position, unless there was a very good reason for such kinetic action. Um, because uh, the uh, British government, uh, relative to the uh, to American government in the past, tends to want to you know, do things by the book, um, or at least, well, what we'll, we'll passes out of the book in international law uh, and the court of public opinion. Um, so main, British may not be as, as um, quick to act uh, in a kinetic fashion, but of course the British don't have any choice in that matter because the British don't have any kinetic capabilities. Um, but um, I guess the, the key point there would be to what extent were the British in the loop on the decision to act kinetically against the satellite. Um, especially if um, you know the second and third order consequences would start um, affecting commercial interests in in the orbit as well if if, if it created a, a long lasting debris cloud. Um, was was there another question about perspective of Russia or something? Sorry. Extended charts, I think. Were. Or, or yeah. So and and, and but uh, what, what do you think about? I mean, how do you think the, the British would view Russian uh, space operations, both kinetic and non-kinetic? I, I don't know. Uh, is, is, is the um, short and honest, uh, <laughs> short and honest answer there? Um, I mean, again, because nothing's uh, been written about this. Um, I, I, but I guess the answer to that in any particular scenario would be the context in which it's happening. So, you know, in the last few years, you know, the relationship between London and Moscow are pretty abysmal, um, for instance, that we're all familiar with. So I guess there'd been, you know, a, a heightened level of hawkishness um, and paranoia about Russian action um, at the moment. So I, I, and, 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 and I suppose it's true for a lot of the topics uh, in the agenda is that a lot of the questions have to be seen in terms of the wider terrestrial and political strategic context, because it's difficult to abstract about the significance of X, Y, and Z acts or capability in space, because a lot of it depends on what's going on um, on Earth uh, and stuff. So the question about destroying a satellite is, is very different in crisis management terms if nobody's lost a life yet in this crisis. But if you have a few hundred killed on either side, then shooting at an expensive satellite doesn't seem so bad, possibly, uh, when people are dying down on Earth. So, um, I don't know, w without more appropriate context, it's hard to think of single things like that in isolation, really. And a lot of it matters as well as to exactly what's being targeted and how. 
And if we're worried about hostile eyes in space, it's just something that we as NATO have to just get used to. And we're already used to it in terms of behaviour in like um, uh, nuclear subpens, for example, in that you know the British have been operating, um, you know, Faslane and adapting their behaviour to known flights, overflights of um, Soviet and then Russian uh, satellites as well. Um, so I, I guess it would just encouraging that behaviour down the operational and tactical levels as well, and not just at the top strategic level of behaviour. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much both. Um, so, and I'd just say that I think it's illuminating that there is so little clarity on the British position and this echoes the lack of clarity, I mean, that we also see in the West Pacific, for example, on Japanese positions on a variety of issues. So if you think of two of the US's closest and most capable allies, the UK uh, in Europe and, and Japan in, in East Asia, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, a real lack of clarity over what those two key US allies think about a lot of these issues. Um, so, so it's not just that these guys don't know, it's that it, it's not really known very well outside extremely classified areas. So Japan, on that, I was going to say Japan have had a history of adhering very much to things, like to the letter of the OST, etc. So their, their kind of thinking on this is probably also very, very nascent um, in terms of how they think about escalation management, etc. So quite similar. Well, there, there's, so, and we, we had a talk from a, a Japanese expert a couple of weeks ago that, that we can go into, but, but yes, there, there is, there's definitely movement in Japan as well. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, so uh, I, I'd be very, very grateful uh, to open it up uh, for questions. Uh, Nicole. All right.